Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. Hi, everyone. So today on the show, we have Sheng Shu, who's joining us. Welcome, Sheng. Hello, really great to be here. Hi, Laura. Hi, Carolina. So I'll give a quick bio on Sheng before we start. So Sheng is a partner at Basis Adventures, where she focuses on developer-led products. She previously was a principal at Upfront Ventures, the oldest and largest South Californian-based early-stage venture capital firm. Prior to joining Upfront, she was a founder and an operator. She was the first product manager at the Minerva Project. She co-founded and was the CEO of Onion Math, an edtech startup in China that raised $90 million to date. She started her career at BCG, where she advised clients across technology, retail, healthcare, and private equity. She holds an MBA and an AB in Applied Math and Computer Science, both from Harvard University. Welcome, Sheng. Really great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for accepting and uh, welcome to this uh, conversation. Starting with uh, an aspect of uh, your trajectory that I didn't know. I, we know each other quite a bit because of uh, Calvin Fellow, but I know several fascinating aspects of uh, your journey and I was uh, very keen on, on having uh, you here with us. And uh, surprisingly, I didn't know about your experience in education and in particularly curious about uh, how was uh, your experience in Union Math and Minerva and uh, your views on, on education and the sector as a whole. After graduate college, I really wanted to do a startup. So I worked with a friend from Harvard to co-found a company that today has become uh, what is known as Onion Math. And for me, education is something I'm very passionate about because it levels a playing field for people regardless of where they come from and allows them to do and to achieve whatever they set their minds to. It's something that was very true to my journey because I am an immigrant. I immigrated to the U.S. when I was 11 when my dad decided to get a job across overseas. And I've always gone through public school and I was able to get to Harvard and education had made a huge impact in my life. So I wanted to level the playing field and enable everyone to have the opportunity. And the only way to do that is with tech. And so it's with that thesis that I uh, co-founded this company with a friend from college that today is called Onion Math. And also I joined Minerva Project, which is reimagining what university is in the 21st century, uh, a very tech-enabled experience that amplifies the learning experience. So I think that there's a lot of innovation that can be done in the education space by personalizing education, by enabling formats that's much more conducive to learning as opposed to just lectures and by making everything more engaging and more effective. That's incredible. I mean, that you chose uh, to go for Onion Math right after your college experience. And I totally agree. I mean, how education is important and uh, how it, it enables uh, people to do their choices and how it frees uh, human beings all over the world. 
you move it from operator to investor and you join it up from Fainters, which is one of the largest early stage VC funds with a two billion asset under management, where you were actively involved in some very interesting deals. What can you share about this experience in, in Upfront and uh, how have uh, your years as an uh, operator uh, shaped it and helped you on, on your challenges as a VC then? When I moved to LA, I knew I wanted to be in the startup world, but I didn't have a network. So I thought the best way to get a network, because that's so critical to being successful in startups, because it's all about people. It's all about who you work with, whether they'll be successful, whether you'll be successful with them. So I thought the best way to get to network is to, to join a VC. And in the journey, discover that I really love being a VC because I get to help founders from the other side of the table and I can resonate with their journeys because I was that founder before, because I was that operator before trying to figure out we have this huge vision that we want to accomplish, a different view that of the world that we want to achieve, but on a day-to-day -day basis, it was really difficult to decide what should we do? Is what we're tackling too hard? Are we being spread too thin? Are we being focused enough? And how to do and the emotional ups and downs of being a founder. So I, I resonated with all of that. And I think that helped me as a VC. That's awesome, Sheng. And continuing on, we'd love to uh, hear a little bit more about, you know, so you joined Upfront right after your experience as a founder And then you were there for a while, and now you are a partner at Basis Set Ventures. This is fantastic, and I know it's relatively recent, I would say. So if you could tell us a little bit about your purpose and mission and the mission of the company, and how did you get there, and what most excites you, tell us a little bit about that move. That'd be great. Yeah, I was very excited to join my partner, Lon, at Basis Set Ventures just a little bit two years ago. I just passed my two-year anniversary last week, actually. And I was very excited about her vision to build a firm that invests in reimagining how people work. And this is everything from offices uh, to factories, everything from knowledge workers, really high-tech to low-tech manufacturing, agriculture, to just a broad swath of the economy. AI and the future of work was a thesis that I had been focused on during my time at Upfront. Uh, it ties to my passion for education and also my intellectual interest in AI and computer science, which I studied in, in school. So it's a perfect mesh of everything that I'm interested in and the opportunity that I see in this market. What excites me the most? Um, <laughs> I am the most excited about investing in Founders building products for developers, data scientists, machine learning, and just creators of all skill levels. And either it's for really complex tooling to help the best and the most high-end engineering teams to wrangle complexity, or it's for no-code local tools to enabling creators of that just wants to create to, to help them build. That's what I'm really excited about because I think my thesis is around raising the ceiling and lower the floor. Because with any trajectory with technology, you can either make it more easy to do something that's really complex and bring good complexity, or you can lower the floor to increase the, the participation, to democratize the means to creation. And that has been a through line in my career. That's very interesting. And uh, you divide your portfolio into four uh, segments or verticals, which are pretty much uh, specific. 
and it's something really unique of uh, your team and, and your company. Can you tell us a little bit of uh, how you do this division and the main reasons for that uh, in terms of uh, investment strategies? Yeah, of course. So we have four investment theses, and these are scalable infrastructure, intelligent collaboration, automated workflows, and autonomous machines. Uh, it's because we're very thesis focused, thesis-oriented investor. I think in this world where you have literally thousands of VCs and more broadly investors that can write you a check, founders often look for the investors that are most thoughtful about their space and really see the big vision that they're going after because they are so early in building their, their company. That alignment and that shared understanding is really important and can really supercharge a founder's journey. So We thought about the opportunities we see broadly in a B2B enterprise software and software infrastructure, and we came up with four theses. And the first one, scalable infrastructure, that's primarily what I focus on. Infrastructure, developer tools, tooling for developers, creators, everything I talked about before. The second one is intelligent collaboration, because my partners spend a combined 10 years early on at Dropbox, which is the first collaboration tool company, also the first... Uh, I think they're still the fastest to reach a billion in revenue because of their product-like growth motion, their self-serve motion. They've pioneered a lot of the modern best practices in, in what it means to build a SaaS company, a collaboration company. And they've redefined what it means for collaboration tools and how do you work together in this pandemic world. So we focus on that and we think that there's a lot more room to, to innovate there. And the third one, automating workflows, is primarily thinking about across all industries, what a factory, logistics, supply chain, all these different industries, there's a lot of opportunities to automate workflows and to apply SaaS and to bring technology into those industries. And the last one, autonomous machines, is uh, we have some deep tech robotics investments, uh, such as a welding robot, because they apply computer vision to welding seams. There's a huge shortage in skilled welders. And so This is a pretty novel application. And we, we kind of do this because this allows us to balance risk across our portfolio. For example, in automated workflows, those companies, the risk tends to be primarily around execution risk. Can you get to market quickly enough? The technology itself does not need to be the most cutting edge. It's often SaaS and pretty straightforward ways of just making things more efficient. In the fourth thesis of autonomous machines, it tends primarily to be technology risk, which is if you can build this technology, then it is huge and it is awesome, but there is a fair amount of technology risk. So we balance our portfolio across these thesis areas in order to deliver awesome returns to our LPs and, and so that we, we're investing in companies across all horizons. I was just going to ask, so you already told us a little bit, I just wanted to expand a little bit more on, on your thesis on the different verticals. So you already told us a little bit about how that balances the strategy for the portfolio. And I just wanted to explore a little bit more if you think these segments present the same growth patterns and maturity evolution, right, to fit into the portfolio construction. Yeah, I think from a technical, like how how technically advanced it is, the first thesis in scalable infrastructure and the last thesis, autonomous machines are probably more on the tech forward trend where when we back these companies at the earliest stages, they tend to be more fleshed out in developing their products, but much earlier in terms of traction, just because that's what a lot of the validation and a lot of the difficulty is. And then in terms of collaboration tools, 
and automation, that tends to be more around execution. There are a lot more teams that are capable of building the tech product. But in terms of like insight about particular markets and how do you launch and how do you execute all the go-to-market strategies, um, that a team that can really execute, you can see a huge difference in what they can do. It's basically the fact that differentiation or the barriers of entries or the moats that are one business is building is pretty much on more on the product and the other one is more on the distribution channel. Is this the way you see it or, or it's a combination of both? Yeah, it's, it's probably hard to bucket all the companies into two buckets, but um, <laughs> at the highest levels, I would say like as seed investors, what are we de-risking first and foremost? It does tend to be we're evaluating some companies based on different thesis around their product. And some companies, primarily based on their execution uh, hustle, are they able to learn quickly from the market? Amazing, yeah. And Chang, it's uh, one of very interesting uh, characteristics of uh, how you work and how your partners also work is that uh, you research a lot and you write uh, and you make available the results of your research on your website. And uh, you recently wrote a research about uh, GitHub stars and open source uh, metrics, which is uh, Quite interesting. I would uh, love if you could tell us a little bit of how you come up with the idea of uh, researching and what are the main findings? Yeah, so I spend a lot of time looking at developer tools of which a lot of them are open source. And there are also a very wide world of open source projects that are not companies. And there's so many different statistics you can look at. So I had this question of which one should you actually look at? What metrics actually matters at the earliest stages? And I had this inkling that GitHub stars is not the answer, even though a lot of investors point to stars. <laughs> it's the most visible traction. It's on the top right of every single project. And it's very clear which one has a higher stars than, than another one. Um, but I had an inkling that was wrong. So I did an analysis of the hundreds open source companies that have raised funding over the past five years. And then I looked at whether they're commercial progress correlates with GitHub stars or other metrics and it validated the hypothesis. GitHub stars are a total vanity metric that they don't actually indicate that a project is really commercially successful. Uh, it just potentially indicates interest. But the better metric to look at on GitHub is actually issues. Issues is a little bit hidden on the page. It basically is people complaining about your product. But the trick is if one of your users is in your product and cares about it enough for them to file a bug or file a ticket with you, that means that you are building something interesting, that you are seeing the earliest signs of adoption. It's a little counterintuitive when I first saw it, but after I thought, thought about it and talked to friends that have open source projects about it, it absolutely made sense. So I think now uh, other VCs are starting to look at issues as well in addition to that research. But more broadly, like we are a very data-driven firm and we have a data science team in-house. We do a lot of these efforts um, internally and we are able to share some of this publicly. But internally, it helps us drive a very data-driven way to look at what are the early indicators of success. Amazing, amazing. That's really cool. It makes total sense, right? Because if you're getting complaints, it means that your product is making such a difference that you're going to take the time of day. So it's engagement. Yep, exactly. That's really cool. So um, we recently learned that Basis Adventures also has a community called Hypergrowth Network, a team of experienced mentors that help companies with overall strategies, the discovery of growth channels and of hiring. 
we would love to learn about how the community works, how do you select companies and to participate, how you bridge and engage these mentors, and also if you are all open to founders in Brazil participating as well. Absolutely. Hypergrowth Network is by default global. Most of our programs that we build are by default global because we think opportunity is everywhere. And as long as it fits our thesis area and it also has to target the U.S. market at some point, otherwise we, we will not be very relevant um, as an investor, uh, we build programming that are default global. So the Hypergrowth Network, it's a group of hundreds of um, mentors who are leaders and operators across go-to-market functions, also across product and engineering at all the hot Silicon Valley companies and some you know, big Fortune 500s outside the Silicon Valley as well. And the reason we built the network is because we wanted to democratize this access to this inner circle, the access to advice and the know-how that Silicon Valley companies are people that have done it before, that they know. Um, because we think a lot more founders can benefit from it. And if you think about the value that VC provides, it's often just introductions to, to our network. So here we have created a, a double opt-in way, but an automated way, um, access to, to our network so that we can serve more founders and serve them much more scalably. So in terms of how to participate, there's an application form on the website, hypergrowth.network is the website. You just apply and put some information about your company. And if you fit the criteria, then we would love to have you join the one of the next cohorts. And what about the most recent one that you just uh, unveiled, the Dev Founder Community? I thought it was amazing and uh, it would be awesome if you could tell uh, a little bit of what is the project behind and, uh, and what are you offering to founders? Yeah, very excited to talk about this because we are literally launching it next week. Uh, we've been building this an in-house, in-stealth over the past year. And now we want to make it public and to welcome more founders to join this community. So it's a community of founders building products for developers or creators of all skill levels. And it comes from working with these founders in our portfolio at the earliest stages. And they all share similar questions. And 70% of all they care about is go-to-market strategies. Because the founders tend to be really awesome engineers and product and can create products that are really awesome, but they often haven't haven't, for example, done content distribution or think through like how do you commercialize open source or any of the other like go-to-market strategies. So the community was created by founders sharing best practices with each other. And also we bring in um, speakers and guests from founders that have done it before that are a couple steps ahead or operators at the hot companies like Airtable, Pilot, Branch, um, Stripe, Coda, at all, all of these companies to tell founders like exactly what they went through a year or two ago so that more founders can understand how do you get to product market fit? How do you do go to market? Yeah, no, that, this is impressive because when we first started at, uh, at Astella, we found that there was a lack of knowledge and understanding from founders on, on how to scale and go to market strategies. And uh, since we invest in, in seed stage, which is exactly on the edge of uh, product market fit, and the challenge of the scaling is huge. We created a, a network of experts with the same intention. It's a tropical, <laughs> a tropical network with a, the intention of uh, helping founders to go to market strategies. It's the same thing. It will be awesome to see how you evolve and, uh, and change ideas. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And once again, we're open to founders from all across the world. All our events are global on Zoom and we have 
we do them in the mornings um, California time so that we can accommodate all time zones as much as we can. And it's a very vibrant community. So, uh, so a lot for folks to, who are interested to reach out on our website. It's excellent for Brazilians this time uh, difference because it uh, coincides with our lunchtime. So <laughs> you can probably spend some time on, uh, without interrupting any meeting or anything. So it's, it's easy to um, organize your schedule. So awesome. Totally. I'll tell uh, founders that look for us with the idea. And uh, talking about founders, I, I do remember when we were at, uh, during the Kaufman program, you presented a research on uh, hypothesis of uh, how demographics, behavioral and uh, personality traits uh, define or explain a, a successful founder. And uh, I remember you mentioned that uh, most of VCs have limited time to spend with founders. They make uh, the, their decisions with uh, information and signals uh, like uh, age, school, and, and experience that often leads to biased conclusions. Can you tell a, a little bit about this research? What is behind it uh, and your main takeaways? This was mind-blowing for me. It would be awesome if you could dig into it a little bit. Yeah, as with anything, whenever we have a question, we look for data. So we conducted a data-oriented analysis of what makes a successful founder. Um, because this is a topic that we like to debate all the time and, and everyone has their theories. But our hypothesis was a lot of VCs are anchoring on are things on your resume. And our hypothesis or those characteristics are not the most predictive of who is the most successful founder. Instead, what's the most predictive is personality traits and attributes and certain aspects of founder market fit. So we were able to, to quantify that. In our research, we found that two attributes are the most predictive. There are dominant traits that all successful founders shared and less successful founders didn't share. One is just strong execution. Are you effective on a day-to-day -day basis? Can you learn and adapt quickly in this market? And the second one is uh, to be results-driven. It doesn't matter like how you get to a goal. It doesn't matter how you do something as long as you iterate quickly in order to get to the result. But the most interesting findings from this research is perhaps that we were able to cluster the founders that we've, we've studied into six different archetypes and three archetypes of successful founders and three archetypes of less successful founders. And we have a more study on the website, founderssuperpower.com, if you'd like to check it out. But of the successful founders, the three types are humble operator, agile visionary, and seasoned executive. And the humble operator are those that are just exceptional at execution, extremely humble, while confident in themselves. They're resourceful, gritty, and people that worked with them before like tend to follow them. Agile visionaries are usually first-time founders. They're young, they're visionary, they're driven by a desire for greatness, and they have a unique perspective in the market they're going after. And seasoned executives are probably the most self-explanatory. Their experienced older founders have a lot of experience and deep industry expertise, and they're intrinsically motivated to build a company. And, and so we studied these traits, and it's actually interesting that there's very subtle differences that distinguish someone who is a successful founder versus someone who is not a successful founder. And I think it just speaks to that there's no one template, no one size fit all of someone who is an awesome founder. It's someone who is like very self-aware of your strengths and weaknesses and knows to complement yourself and knows not to overuse your superpowers and to have someone and to temper them. 
But there's a much longer research and study on founderssuperpower.com if you'd like to get into it. Yeah, no, totally. And uh, do you have a specific bias on looking for those archetypes that uh, <laughs> that you recognize when talking to founders or you normally yeah. don't? <laughs> I think we have a little bit of a bias. It's, I think it's mostly because if you look at our peers, other VCs, they tend to prioritize certain founder archetypes. They just, when those founders pitch, they marry the ones that are really good at storytelling, those are super charismatic, or ones who have a great resume, I mean, coming out of a great company, or have previously been founder before, they just land much better. So I think, I think VCs, they probably tend to prioritize agile visionaries and seasoned executives. But we think that those are not all of the awesome founders. We think that humble operators are great founders too. And we have many examples in our portfolio that we help them on coaching them on like how to fundraise and how to pitch. But they're, when they share a plan, they always hit it or they exceed it. So we have a bit of a, I think, a bit of a firm bias as a result. But we have founders across all examples in our portfolio. When I, I read your research, I recognize it that you mentioned and you talk a lot about a founder market fit and team problem fit. What are the main differences of those uh, two concepts and, and how did you come up to them? Yeah, I think founder market fit is a very important concept um, because someone who is a great founder in one context might not do well at all in a different context where they're not exercising their strength. I have an example of a company that's outside our portfolio, but I had seen that founder previously in a company that's very operationally intensive, but this founder's strength is around sales and fundraising and not around ops. So that company actually ended up burning a lot of capital and didn't work out well. It was an operation intensive marketplace. His next company had skyrocketing in valuation, had just done really well because it was SaaS products. There was no operations associated with it. But the most important thing was around a brand and fundraising and hype and sales, which he was wonderful at. And he built a movement around that company and had a lot of believers and had got a lot of traction quickly. So that's the importance of like founder market fit of how important it is for a founder to recognize what your strengths are and see if the business you're building, if it's what you're passionate about and if what's required to succeed in that business is exactly aligned with your personal strength. Really cool. So let's just continue looking at the founder a little bit more from another lens, from another perspective. So for you, uh, what is a true visionary? And what are the traits you often find in these people on top of everything else we spoke about the founder? I actually think that Silicon Valley perhaps put visionary founders too much of a pedestal. And I don't think we fully agree with it. <laughs> We definitely have backed our share of visionary founders and our share of founders that for whom their strength is in putting one foot in front of another and maybe not in telling a story. But I think both archetypes can very much succeed. What's important when we see a visionary founder is typically someone who just has like an intuition for what the space they're working in will evolve to look like. And that the vision that they tell you is so compelling that you can't help but hope that their vision of the world comes true. Like Elon Musk is absolutely a visionary. He leads people because of his bold dreams and people follow him and want to make it true. But what's often the case with visionaries is 
it's very rare to find a founder who is both visionary and good at execution because it's a very subtle line. Maybe you are too, maybe you believe in the story that you tell yourself so much and you tell others so much that you fail to see whether it's resonating in the market or not. Because as a founder, you get hundreds of no's. You get told no all the time. You get told that what you're building is impossible all the time. When do you listen? And when do you just keep doing what you're doing until the world starts to slowly understand what you do? It's a very subtle line. We very much look for founders that are empathetic with customers and that iterate quickly with market feedback. And because we think that combination paired with a vision for how this market will evolve and what the future is, that combination is very powerful. But if a founder is just really awesome and charismatic storyteller, we dig deeper and really um, pressure test and unpack to see if we can build conviction there. That's awesome. And you mentioned on your presentation that uh, your job is to look for brilliant entrepreneurs when their success is not yet uh, obvious. What are the risks that uh, you are most uh, willing to take and how do you do your, your frequent bets I mean, and choices? <laughs> the risk I'm most willing to take is no traction. <laughs> I'm a product person. I like to play with the product. And I think I have an inkling of what product trends are happening and where are products going in just like into the future. So if I just feel that a product is writing the right ways and has the right trends and the founder is thoughtful about the decisions they're making to build this product and they have a product I can play with, then I'm willing to overlook the fact that maybe they haven't launched yet or don't have traction, don't have revenue. <laughs> Those are all things that we're, we're willing to bet on. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. So you invest in global solutions and you're in Los Angeles and California and so many great opportunities there. So what are the odds in your view that you'll find outstanding opportunities in other regions? And do you have any particular views on exploring and in general and these different ecosystems around the world? Absolutely. I think we were always more willing to invest outside the Silicon Valley than uh, many other funds. And since the pandemic, we took a look at our statistics. We've doubled the number of investments outside of Silicon Valley than before the pandemic. And even companies that we meet that are in the more traditional geos, if you will, um, have moved and they move headquarters and they're totally outside now. So we think opportunity is everywhere. And especially in many of the theses that we invest in, the best founders, they can literally be anywhere. And the most category defining companies, they don't have to come from a mode. The founders don't have to come from a mode. And they don't have to be based in Silicon Valley to succeed. Um, to give you one example, in our deals this year, we are investing in founders in the, based in the Netherlands, uh, based in Latvia, uh, based in Australia, I India, and that's just the international ones. And in the US, we've since the pandemic, we've um, backed founders based in Houston, of course, like New York and San Francisco, uh, but also like Chattanooga. And, and just variety of geographies. To tell one fun story, the Latvia founder, when we first met him, we met him when he was living in Denver. And then during the pandemic, he decides to move home to Latvia. And so now we invest in a company based in Latvia. And it doesn't matter at all. It's a, it's a remote first, distributed first company. Nothing's changed. And the pandemic has only accelerated their growth. 
That's amazing. And you nurture all those uh, opportunities throughout the communities that you create and participate, right? Yes. Awesome. Absolutely. I mean, we have, we have different hubs. Like we have a small hub in New York. Uh, we have a small hub in, in Seattle and some of the, obviously have a hub in, in the Bay Area mm -hmm. and in LA. But over time, uh, we just look for where interesting founders are building interesting products and go where they are. Yeah, that's awesome. That's interesting. Well, unfortunately, we are heading to the end of our conversation. It's amazing how your journey and uh, your trajectory went and how you build research and you build knowledge. It's really amazing. It's very awesome every time that we talk and I learn a little bit. Every time that you go for a special session in Kaufman, I, I join because I want to know what you're doing. So really cool, Cheng. It's a pleasure to be here with you. To finalize our conversation, we normally do like a batch of uh, philosophical questions about the future, about uh, life and humanity. So I would uh, like to start asking you how optimistic you are in terms of the future and how far can we dream that our innovators of the world will create uh, the solutions we need for sustainability? And how does all of this uh, drive your investment decisions, if it drives or not? I mean, those are the, the philosophical ones. <laughs> I think to be an early stage VC, you have to be an optimist. So I am definitely an optimist because early stage investing is a labor of love. On a day-to-day -day basis, These are all founders who are super early in their journeys. They often have a product and they're, they're launching it. And it's, but on a day to day basis, it's seeing the seeds of the germ of something interest of market pull, but it's a drip faucet that just keeps dripping until it finally becomes a flow. So on a day to day basis, absolutely. It's a labor of love. <laughs> and I have to be optimistic. I'm very optimistic because everyone's so excited about how they want to make the future better. And they're actively creating companies and creating tools for that. This year, we've backed a company uh, solving challenges of climate change with SaaS and CPG companies. We've invested across like a pretty broad spectrum of companies in our portfolio. So we're going to continue to invest against these trends and, and solving the most pressing issues. I think with any industry where really smart people put their minds to it, you can definitely see how you can get a lot better. And I just hope that more smart people put their mind at the difficult, thorny, hard problems and that we'll be lucky enough to partner with you on your journey. Totally. It was the best definition of our job to be done, the labor of love. I love it. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Shang, <laughs> um, we have one final icebreaker for you. I think you touched upon it slightly, but uh, what's something that's currently exciting you and what's something that's currently scaring you? Exciting me is, is actually remote. I think the pandemic has finally uh, convinced a lot of people that You don't need to be in person to be mostly effective. So it reduces the need and reduces the environmental waste, uh, least of all, and moves a lot of things to be remote so that people can live where they are happy and they can work where they're happy and just choose more and enabling our companies to be able to hire from a broader talent pool. So those things I'm very excited about, just knocking down the traditional barriers around in-person and opening up the possibilities of remote. As for scaring me, I'm... I'm scared that the world is becoming increasingly polarized and a lot of topics are difficult to talk about. 
and there's a lot of just a lot of stereotyping and and just increasingly heated discussions and those things are are a little bit scary and i won't go into the details but i very much hope that we can work together in this increasingly globalized and increasingly interconnected world totally very good thank you so much for accepting and for being here with us and spending this uh, time of a wonderful conversation Chang, thank you so much for having me. This is so great. Yeah, <laughs> this is great. great to get to know you. Talk soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm uh, keeping my fingers crossed for the frontiers to be open to Brazilians in the U.S. <laughs> soon. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully we'll see each other in November. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chang. <laughs> <laughs>